America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Ulker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, also joining from Brussels. This week, we are going to be talking about the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. This is an organization of 57 members spread across Europe, Asia, and North America, which describes itself as the world's largest regional security organization. We've talked about the OSCE before on the show. We talked to George Sertelli, the president of the OSCE parliament back in season one. But uh, this week, we are going to talk about some of the challenges uh, that the OSCE has faced in its aim to provide a forum for dialogue between East and West while safeguarding principles ranging from the rule of law to human rights. These are obviously difficult principles uh, and a difficult forum to maintain under current conditions. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in late February is in clear violation of the OSCE's commitment to respect for sovereignty, territorial integrity and human rights, and has poisoned the atmosphere in Vienna, the seat of the organisation's headquarters, as well as compromising the OSCE's decision-making on Ukraine and elsewhere. Before the invasion, the organisation was already facing immense challenges. Its principles and authority were routinely challenged and its budget has been cut. Now it seems entirely possible that this viable and valuable multilateral forum could be completely incapacitated, or even the war in Ukraine is sounding the OSCE's death knell. We'll be asking today, is it possible to preserve the organisation and ensure that it doesn't completely collapse as the war and the polarisation between its members intensify? So to talk about this, uh, we are lucky to be joined by an expert on the OSCE, Cornelius Freisendorf. Cornelius is the head of the Center for OSCE Research and a senior researcher at the Institute for Peace Research and Security Policy at the University of Hamburg. And he has extensive experience thinking about um, the role of the OSCE in conflict, post-conflict and transition states, and general questions about security and conflict, post-conflict and transition states. So Cornelius, uh, welcome to War and Peace. Hello, Olya. Hello, Elisa. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. So Cornelius, for those of our listeners who are not experts on these matters, can you quickly explain what is the OSCE? The OSCE is an organization comprising 57 participating states, uh, stretching from Vancouver to Vladivostok. So it is an organization that includes the United States, that includes Russia, as well as Central Asian states, states in the Caucasus, and um, all European states. The um, OSCE is involved in various areas. This is arms control, confidence and security building measures, human rights, conflict management, also environmental and economic affairs. So there's very little that the OSCE is not doing. The OSCE is um, in the form of the ambassadors of delegations meeting on a weekly basis in Vienna to discuss security-related matters. So this is one of the very last forums that regularly brings together 
American, um, Western European and Russian officials, both military and political representatives. And it's a product of the Cold War, which survived the Cold War. Can you talk a little bit about what gave birth to this organization? Yes, the origins of the OSCE go back to 1975, when government signed the Helsinki Final Act. This was right in the middle of the Cold War, and the Soviet Union and NATO states had very different interests. The Soviet Union was interested in having the status quo that was created after World War II recognized by Western states, And Western states had an interest in making the relationship with the Soviet Union more stable, reducing the risk of war, and also promoting human rights and scientific exchange, other matters of um, transnational contact. Now, during the Cold War, the organization or under that conference, uh, several follow-up conferences were organized. But it was only at the end of the Cold War when the CSCE, so that's the predecessor of the OCE, was, almost took a life on its own when it, it became the OCE and when institutions were created that were supposed to help states implement commitment. So the 1990 Charter of Paris was a landmark document in which all states committed themselves to democracy and the rule of law. Perhaps you could um, give us some of the high points of the OSCE since the Cold War. How has it evolved and what is its role? For the evolution of the OSCE, the 1990s are crucial. So we're talking about a rather short window of opportunity right after the end of the Cold War, when Russia, other former Soviet states, democratized and when the European security architecture became more inclusive. At that time, under the roof of the OSCE, important arms control and confidence and security building measures were agreed, which um, helped to work towards a reduction of the gigantic amount of conventional arms that had been amassed in Europe during the Cold War, and to build trust between the two sides. Their institutions were created within the OECE to promote human rights. These are three institutions, the Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights, based in Warsaw, the Office for the Freedom of the Media, based in the Secretariat in uh, Vienna, and the High Commissioner on Human Rights, which is based in The Hague. Plus, participating states negotiated a large amount of commitments in the so-called three dimensions, which go back to the three baskets of um, the CSCE. So the first dimension, that's political military cooperation. The second dimension is cooperation on environmental and economic matters. And the third dimension is the human rights dimension. So... Since the end of February, when Russia launched this full-fledged attack on Ukraine, what has this done? What has the effect been on the OSCE? It has been a shock to the OSCE, as it has been a shock to all of us. This war is risking the survival of the organization. The organization has been ailing for many, many years 
And the main reason are deteriorating relations between Russia and Western states. So Russia's annexation of the Crimea in 2014 has led to a situation where on a weekly basis, ambassadors in Vienna would accuse each other of violating uh, OCE commitments. Still, the organization was able to function, although ODIR, for example, the uh, human rights dimension, was increasingly embattled with Russia and also other authoritarian states being very concerned about support for free elections, uh, for freedom of assembly, other things that endanger regime stability. Now, this war has created a major dilemma also for Western states. Do Western states want to take decisions together with Russia and thus risk legitimizing this Russian war of aggression? Or do they want to create a situation where Russia might leave the organization or accuse Western states of having destroyed the organization. So is the OSCE going to be a casualty of this war? Is it already a casualty of this war? I think the first days after Russia's scale invasion of Ukraine, there was a risk that Western states would not even sit in the same room with Russia anymore. Um, there were walkouts in Vienna, mm -hmm. same as in the United Nations. And um, that maybe Western states would no longer be actively involved in decision-making together with Russia. Now, this would have destroyed the organization because the OCE is based on consensus. So uh, any decision on the budget, for example, or on field operations requires the consensus of all 57 participating states. What the situation now seems to be that Western states are still willing to preserve the OECE, while Russia also doesn't seem to be on a course where it wants to leave the organization. It also benefits from the OECE. For example, there have been recent exchanges on uh, military activities where the Russian ambassador sits in and receives information. This is something that Russia does not get in UN Security Council or in Geneva. So there seems to be a minimum willingness by all parties to continue working within the OSCE. Why do you think that is? Why are the both sides willing to keep the OSCE alive? What benefit is it having at the moment? The loss of the organisation would be uh, huge. It is the only inclusive European security organisation. NATO is not inclusive. The European Union is not inclusive. And um, it is only in the OCE, where there's some form of dialogue, minimal cooperation between Russia and Western states, as well as between Western states and authoritarian states such as Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan. The OCE is involved in various mediation formats as well. Think about the Geneva international discussions, where the OCE is one of the mediators. Think about the Minsk group, um, trying to mediate um, in the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia, where the OCE is also an important actor. So losing that format would be a gigantic loss and it would probably be irretrievable because the window of opportunity that existed in the early 1990s when all states turned towards democracy and the rule of law, that is no longer available. 
aside from the meetings, there are things that the OSC was doing and is still doing that functions that presumably all of the parties still appreciate, right? It's the OSC Men's Group that at least ostensibly mediates the conflict in the Karabakh, although Azerbaijan would rather it stop. Both Russia and Armenia continue to argue that it should continue to. I mean, do you think that the OSC will find a way through this that lets these things continue to function? Every year, the OSC has a new state that is leading the organization. The position of the Polish chair is no business as usual. Now, that has been the position for, of Western states for many years, but it's been exacerbated by Russia's um, invasion of Ukraine. So for the moment, the OCE can survive, although activities such as mediation in Georgia and in the Minsk group seem to be on hold now. In Transnistria, the OCE can still mediate between the two sides. So there's more room for maneuver there. On the positive side, actually, all of the mandates of the field operations are still there until the end of the year. So at this point, there's no risk of one of the field missions having to close. What did happen, though, is that the SMM, the Special Monitoring Mission in Ukraine, Russia opposed the extension of the mandate. So the SMM, it's not bad yet, but it is in a purely administrative mode the project coordinator in Ukraine has readjusted its activities and is involved in mainly humanitarian uh, activities. But the SMM might be gone very soon, which is uh, a big problem because in case of a ceasefire or some kind of peace, it would be good to have such a mission in order to monitor the ceasefire or uh, broker local uh, truces. Though the SMM was based on a different set of conditions on the ground than anything we're likely to see at the end of uh, active fighting now. Well, of course, nobody knows how this war is going to continue. But uh, if, for example, there is a front line, there is some form of uh, territorial division and an agreement from all sides to end uh, the large-scale fighting then a follow-up mission to the SMM or even the SMM itself, if the Polish chair manages to uh, convince Russia to, to extend the mandate, it may still have a role to play. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. And Alyssa and I are talking to Cornelius Freisendorf about the OSCE and its future. So, Cornelius, I wanted to go back to something you said about the need to extend mandates of a missions that the OSCE has. You said that, that that will need to be done before the end of the year. Would that be a crunch point for the OSCE? Do you think that's going to be a time when the future of the OSCE, in this form at least, will be in the balance? Field operations have always been a crucial element of the work of the OSCE. At some point, they were over 20 these field operations have supported participating states in implementing OSCE commitments. There are still many field operations. The strongest ones are in the Balkans. And here there seems to be an implicit Russian agreement that these can continue operating. 
even though they're quite intrusive. They look at issues such as policing and good governance. There are also field operations in Central Asia, where they're primarily very authoritarian governments. And um, they have a rather narrow mandate supporting the reform programs of the governments. So there may be common interests among Russia and Western states, for example, for addressing the fallout of uh, Afghanistan, looking at uh, issues such as arms trafficking, drug trafficking. And here the OSCE field missions may have a role to play. The OSCE could survive without field operations, although it would very much change its raison d'être. What it cannot survive is when it doesn't have a budget. So this is important that at some point, a decision on the budget needs to be taken. And the OSCE has annual budgets. And at the moment, it is surviving on monthly allocations. So what are some visions you could imagine for the OSCE's future? It very much depends also on the outcome of the war in Ukraine. It would be hard to imagine that Western states are ready to cooperate with Russia if Russia tries to destroy Ukraine as a state and as a nation. And what we've seen over the last days, the killing of civilians, it makes many people wonder, of course, whether the minimum precondition for dialogue will be there, which is allowing Ukraine to exist as an independent state and as a nation. So the minimum requirement for cooperation between Western states and Russia in the OSCE is that they do not deny at least the importance of the OSCE commitments, which includes respect for sovereignty. And now Russia and Western states can at least agree on this minimum consensus, then maybe at some future point, if the war ends in a way that allows Ukraine to survive, the OSCE might again be able to promote arms control, CSBMs, even though this seems uh, a very remote possibility now. But uh, there are various treaties, think about the Vienna document or agreements, which are outdated, which need to be adapted uh, to new circumstances. But there's a lot that can be built on in case the war in Ukraine ends at some point in a way that allows Ukraine to survive. The Polish prime minister, who, as you said, is, is chair of OSCE at the moment, has suggested that Russia be kicked out of all international organisations. Could the OSCE survive without Russia? Is there any point to it without Russia? It wouldn't be the same. The OSCE, as the CSE, is based on dialogue among adversaries. So in the 1990s, it was no longer adversaries, but during the CSE, during the Cold War, this was dialogue among adversaries. We're back at that. And the question then is, if Russia is allowed to stay, how will the OSCE look like? And it may go back to almost the status quo ante, where it becomes an intergovernmental forum for governments to negotiate in case uh, Western states agree to continue talking to Russia. But even in that case, the OSCE would be very different organizations because what about ODIR? What about freedom of the media? What about the High Commission on, on National Minorities or the field operations in Central Asia or even in the Balkans? So if all that is gone, it will be more than a talk shop. There would still be ambassadors sitting in Vienna 
by the entire institutional apparatus that allows the OSCE to support implementation of commitment would no longer be there. And what about consensus decision-making? How do you see that going anywhere under almost any scenario for the organization's future? When I talked to Russian diplomats over the last years, they all said, if you touch the consensus principle, we're out. So consensus is one of the reasons why Russia likes the OECE as it likes the UN Security Council, because it can control the organization. And there's a lot of micromanagement of field operations, for example, uh, not only by Russia, but also by Western states and states hosting field operations. So it is hard to imagine the OECE without consensus. There may be workarounds, for example, if certain activities no longer find the consensus, then Western states may be provided what's called extra budgetary contributions, which is sort of a parallel budget, which does not require consensus. But in that case, you couldn't really call it an OCE field operational activity anymore. Um, so consensus is um, at the core of the OCE. What are some decisions that have to be, I mean, you talked about uh, the end of this year. What are some other decisions that have to be made pretty quickly and on what time frame that are going to shape the future of the OSCE? One important decision regards human rights as well. That's the so-called HDIM. So the Human Dimension Implementation Meeting. Every year, ODIR is organizing what is Europe's largest human rights conference. Actually, very few people know about it. It says something about the visibility or marketing problem of the OSCE. But it is a very large conference taking place in Warsaw which also requires consensus among participating states, including on the agenda of uh, that meeting. Now, the meeting hasn't taken place for two years, the first time because of the pandemic and last year because of Russia's opposition. If for a third time in a row the HDIM does not take place, it may be dead, which would be a huge loss for NGOs, for example, who travel to Warsaw in order to uh, voice their complaints and talk to OSCE officials. And the budget needs to be decided, of course, and then at the end of the year, the field operations. I wanted to come back to the question of what the OSCE can do in the Ukraine war. You talked a little bit about what it could do in the aftermath. Is there anything it can do now to help bring an end to the conflict? Well... Negotiations to bring an end to the conflict must take place at the highest level, also preparing on the working level. The OSCE could be a forum for that if there is agreement on the highest level. So the regular exchanges in Vienna. But it's not the only forum, of course. Most important, direct contacts among the heads of state and government. In case there is an end to this war, a follow-up mission to the SMM is conceivable. And the SMM has often been belittled. It has been accused of not being able to end the war. But that ignores um, the many things the SMM has done. It has been the eyes and ears of the international community on the ground. It has issued thousands of reports on um, ceasefire violations, violations of the Minsk agreements. And a future mission might again assume a monitoring role. Also, what such a mission could do is negotiate local ceasefires, which are very important for the local population, for example, in order to restore electricity, water supply, 
It will never be an armed mission, but uh, it seems any armed mission in Ukraine is not conceivable anyway, because it would create um, confrontation with Russia. So um, it's important to keep these formats open for later use. Do you think it can play a role in building European security architecture post-Ukraine? The European security architecture is going to go for a transformation. Is it the place to begin discussions on that? It seems all the OCE can do is complement a focus on defense and deterrence. Even here in Germany, where dialogue with Russia has often been underlined uh, by politicians and uh, where a lot of the population is sympathetic, even here there has been an incredible U-turn, a reliance on deterrence and defense. Now, the OSE, given war, Russia's war of aggression, will not become the overarching European security institution. There was a hope in the 1990s. Russia wanted the OSE as the main European security institution, also because it could control the OSE. It cannot control NATO or the European Union. I think what's important now is to not only think in terms of defense and deterrence, but also in terms of future dialogue with Russia. And even if that's a very, very minimalist dialogue, which, for example, helps to avert inadvertent war, which nobody wants. So there is a common interest here. This is where CSBM's arms control become important. So yes, the OSCE and more largely uh, cooperative security uh, does still have a role to play, even though it's very hard to say it um, after what we've seen the last couple of things. So what do you see as the most important steps that Western states need to take in order to preserve the OSCE? One is just endurance. I mean, there can be walkouts in Vienna. That will not destroy the organization. But if Western states decide to no longer take decisions with Russia, that would um, endanger the organization. So, yes, if need be, leave the room when Russia produces uh, ludicrous uh, propaganda about uh, fighting neo-Nazism in Ukraine, but still maintain that forum for addressing immediate issues and for keeping open the option of future cooperation with Russia. Western states should also second more personnel because the OCE has severe problems in filling some of the posts. Western governments should contribute more money. The organization has a budget of 150 million euros, less than that annually. That's uh, about the cost of a fighter jet. So many states are not investing enough. These are very practical steps and governments can take. They should also take more political interest in the OECD, for example, send their foreign ministers to meetings and send their best diplomats to Vienna as ambassadors. Thank you, Cornelius. That was uh, really an interesting and timely conversation. I really appreciate you joining us today to talk through all of this. Thank you so much, Olya. And I say it was a pleasure to talk to you. If you would like to follow Cornelius' work more closely, you should check out OSC Insights, which is a policy paper series published in English, Russian, and German, I believe, on the Institute for Peace Research website. So that's www.ifsh.de 
in English, it's uh, slash en slash publication slash osc insights. I assume it's uh, variations on that theme for the other languages. And you should also look at their website as a whole. There are a lot of other resources uh, on the OSCE and European security. I'd also commend you to take a look at the webpage of the OSCE Network of Think Tank Institutions website, which pulls together material from the many organizations that participate in that network, and that's osce-network.net. To read about crisis groups' work on Ukraine and the OSCE, check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org, where you'll be able to find a recent commentary on the OSCE's role in Ukraine and beyond. Yes, then that commentary is titled Preserving the OSCE at a Time of War, and it echoes a lot of uh, conversation that we've just been having with Cornelius. You should also be following Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Elissa is at Elissa Jobson. And I'm at Olya Olaker. You can check us out on Facebook and Instagram as well, where we are at Crisis Group. If you've enjoyed this podcast or have any suggestions for topics or guests for the show, do give us a shout out on Twitter or wherever you are online. You can also email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And of course, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review as well. We'll love it less if it's not as good rating or review, but we'll love that too because it will help us to improve. So please do respond with whatever is truly in your heart. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe and uh, very broadly defined Europe and things that concern Europe. Check out Europod for some of the others. A big thanks to producer Bull Media and to our coordinator, Finn Dunbar-Johnson. But the biggest thanks, as always, are to you, our listeners. We are looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.